Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. My name is Joe Armstrong, and you are listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, we are very happy to host Dan Navarro. Lowen and Navarro were a beloved acoustic duo with an unorthodox genesis and a premature end. Formed in Los Angeles in the early 1980s, Eric Lowen and Dan Navarro's initial success came when they composed the song We Belong, which would become a major chart hit for Pat Benatar in 1984. They started actively performing together in 1987 and grew their audience the old-fashioned way by connecting with their audience at hundreds of shows and releasing 10 albums over 15 years before Lowen was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis in 2004. They continued to work together until 2009, when Lowen's condition had deteriorated to the point where he needed to focus on his health. But even before his partner was forced to step away from performing, Navarro had begun to do what any person for whom music was a compulsion would do, which was to forge ahead. He wasn't without self-doubts about how he could be a viable artist on his own after such a long, fruitful, and musically intimate partnership, but the fans kept coming, and so did the songs. By early 2014, Navarro's schedule is as busy as ever, touring at a national level, serving on the boards of SAG-AFTRA, Folk Alliance, and others, advocating for performers' rights in Washington, D.C., and preparing to release his first studio album of new material since Eric Lowen's passing in 2012. Along with the upcoming Shed My Skin album, Navarro also released an acoustic album comprised of demos called Skinless in late 2013 that serves as a confident primer on what Navarro was capable of on his own, and it's really good. Welcome to Independence Day, Dan Navarro. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for coming out and doing this, being so generous with your time, generous with your music, generous with your spirit. Well, thanks, bro. Uh, one of my favorite things while we were setting up and kind of doing some tunes, getting some sounds, you described yourself as being loquacious. Yeah, I, I, why use few words when many will do? You know, it's, it's the way I go on these things. Which means I'm not the least bit concerned about doing this interview. Like, I feel like I could toss out the questions and you and I could just ramble. I've been known to go off to the races. For like an hour. But that's good. That makes for great radio, man. Uh, so just a little bit of background. Most people probably know who you are, but just in case they don't, you started way back, uh, Lowen and Navarro, you were a duo. That's right. Um, and you started about roughly when? We put the brand together, we put the duo together in 87, uh, made our first record at the very tail end of 89, and it came out in 90. Uh, we did a couple records. We did a record for an independent, then two for Mercury Records in 93 and 95. Re-released the first record in 94. So by 95, we had three albums out. And then uh, did another independent release in 98. And then in 2002, started our own label and sold far fewer and made way more money. And yeah. kept ourselves alive, you know, in yeah. the independent world, which is what we're here talking Embodying about. Embodying the independent spirit. Let me tell you. Uh, and then, you know, just, I don't want to cast a pall on stuff, but he got... A debilitating disease Eric, along the way. Eric, yeah, Eric was diagnosed in 2004 with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Which if you're going to get something, Boy, man. you don't want to get that's that. That's the one you don't want. I've, I've known personal friends well, who've, who've lost their lives from that, and it's not pretty. And me too, beforehand, he called me and said, I th he, about a, uh, he started showing symptoms a year before his diagnosis. He was falling for no reason at all. And of course, we were such close friends that I could just you know make fun of him. Hey, Grace, how you doing? Have a nice trip. See you next fall. And then one day he said, you know, I've been looking into this because it's been going on. I think I have ALS. I went, shut your mouth. You don't want that. Yeah, don't even joke about yeah, that. Don't, don't even say exactly. that out loud. Well, it got to the point where we became convinced that he had it. 
we then upped the ante on what we were doing. We put a Kickstarter out before Kickstarter existed. We went to our fan base and said, we want to make another record. It's been six years. What do you say? And um, raised an obscene amount of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one guy come in for a hundred grand. My we had Lord. one guy come in for, t- we raised $166,000. And we made two records with it, promoted them like crazy. They did only okay, but it kept us going. And yeah. between all of that, we developed a fan base that was pretty loyal. So we wound up with volunteer roadies and a little entourage that helped us deal with his illness so we didn't have to hire nurses. Um, I asked him, do you want to quit? Do you want to, I know that you could be dead in six months. Do you want to come off the road and spend time with your family? And he said, I want to finish what we started. Yeah. I want to keep going till the wheels come off, till I'm a head on a stick. Yeah, and I mean, so we went five years, 250 shows and three albums before he retired in 09. Yeah. And that's when I kicked into going solo and he, we lost him two years ago. Yeah. I'm can't so, find him anywhere. First of all, God. you know, I know <laughs> I can't even imagine what he must mean to you in a personal sense. So I'm, I'm very sorry. About, well, thank you, buddy. About I that appreciate thing it. Because when I was thinking about talking, I mean, I was, it was so nice to meet you. I met you at an event mm-hmm. uh, at the Grammy Museum just in the fall. And we have some common friends, it turns out. And because uh, you're a guy that I'd always heard of, and, and I was from Chicago, and I'd always see Lone and Navarro popping up in the reader, and I kept thinking, man, I need to go check out those guys one of these days. But I was busy doing my own music thing too. Right and where you the, should be, man. Right and, where you should. Uh, be. So it's nice to finally like meet you and come face to face and talk about these things. But um, so the thing that I like about your career, you know, with Eric, is that you really did it the old-fashioned way. Yeah. You know, you didn't do the thing where it's like you tried to make the most marketable music, marketable music possible, nope. shop it around, get your big deal, because that was something that could have happened back then. The, the model has changed. Uh, you really built your fan base. You said something else as we were setting up in here, which was you, you felt like you had to build it one fan at a time. And, so and tell it, me wor- about it worked out. Well, the funny part is it's not as though we were prescient. We tried the old way and failed miserably. We put rock bands together and nobody cared. And then we got close to a couple of deals and finally they'd say, nah, we don't think so. Um, I got kicked out of a band that I was in with Eric um, in 1983 and we fell out for a while. We decided to get back together to try writing a song just for the heck of it. And in 90 minutes wrote We Belong, the Pat Benatar hit. Yes. It was a hit for her exactly one year later. How it happened, we still don't quite know. It's a sort of legendary story out there of this horrible demo somehow getting into her hands through the efforts of a, of a cool publisher named Tom Sturgis, and it happened. And we're sitting there going, what on earth? So then we put another band together, and it didn't work either. So we finally said, well, you know what? We're failing as, as artists, but we're succeeding as writers. So let's just go do what we want to do our way just for the love of it. And we started playing in a little bar in Mar Vista, California, near, near where I live now, and just played for the locals and we did a weekly, did a steady. Two, we did three sets where one set was our friends and we would do the first set, they'd do the middle set, we'd do the closing set. And it started growing and growing and growing. And our music business friends started saying, well, hey, man, we, we hear you're doing this thing. And we go, yeah, don't come. Yeah, well, stay away. Mean? Stay away. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? You, I go, we don't want you there. Well, why not? Because you're going to tell us to go electric. You're going to tell us to add a third harmony. You're going to tell us to do the song of Eric's that four You're going to tell us to get a drummer with a heroin problem. Exactly. And we said, we don't, if you want to come and listen to soft songs done acoustically, two part harmonies, and some funny stuff in, the, in between, come on out. Otherwise, do us all a favor and stay away. And a guy who finally signed us had no idea how uncool we were, came in, liked it, signed us up. And we went with it. We wound up with every closed door that somehow got opened. Uh, 
head of promotion for the label said, sorry, I can't do anything with this record. But he hired somebody who made it her life's work to make it happen. Got us onto XRT in Chicago. Got us onto Cities 97 in Minneapolis. WHFS in Washington broke us nationally. And suddenly we were this national act, still bubbling under. A couple of trades called it the record that won't go away. And this was all pre-AAA radio. When these stations were AOR stations, uh, pop stations, NPR stations, they were all kind of gathered in different formats. But they had more in common with each other than they did with their formats. Suddenly they coalesced in early 93. We put a record out in later 93 and it did really, really well. So we just kept going and going and going and going and going. We weren't dumb enough to quit and we liked what we were doing. But we were older guys. We'd been been through it all. and But we figured let's just be who we are. So we would play longer. We would talk to people after shows. We would hang out. And the sort of reputation became that we would provide a show with great soul and great passion and great wit, even though the songs were sometimes pretty sad. So we just kept going from there. And it continued. It's been bubbling under forever. We've never been on anybody's top 10 list, but we've had a great time. And when Eric decided that he wanted to keep going, the road became about keeping him alive. It didn't become about making money or selling records. It was about keeping him alive. It's an avocation yeah. sometimes, this career that we do. Exactly. You know, I, there are times where I think, man, I, I wish I knew how to not do this. Well, I've known guys who've tried, and they usually wind up pretty miserable. And then they go back to it for love. And that's kind of what we did. We went to it for love because we knew we weren't going to get signed. We knew that that was over. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be coy here. When we put the first record out in 1990, we were 37 and 38 years old with our first album under our belts. Which is fairly unheard of. Yeah, really. We get our only major label deal at 40 and 41. I mean, I'm 61 years old and I'm you still give on me the hope. road. <laughs> Let me tell you, man, just do what you love and keep doing it. Yeah. That's all I'll say. The most pleasing thing, you said a lot of great things in that little, little uh, diatribe there, happy mm-hmm. diatribe. One of the favorite things I heard is when you said, uh, you said something to the effect of... You know, you, it's a tenacity thing. Yeah. You know, you just stuck with it because you didn't, that's what it is. You didn't know any better. Right. Or you didn't know to do anything else. You just did what you loved and that, because that's the logical thing. Because I feel like that's what I've done my entire life. I'm doing exactly what I was taught to do by my parents. I was taught to chase my dreams and try to be happy. And, you know, those things have led me around in circles and through a lot of mud and through the tops of mountains, both figuratively mm-hmm. and literally. And I don't, but I don't know any other way. I'm doing exactly what I was ingrained to do well and i think that's good training my parents were depression era so they wanted me to be secure they wanted me to make sure i had an income and a roof over my head and i got it the problem is i grew up in an era where we were looking for personal fulfillment right and so for me it was about what's going to keep me happy and getting up in the morning and i tried to quit music repeatedly and i couldn't do it it was miserable and i would end up with bad habits and and bad actions and So then I would kind of gravitate back to it. And literally, I mean, we made it as songwriters when we had given up trying. We made it as artists when we had given up trying. I've been doing this solo thing now for six. Actually, I started out in 06 before he retired to kind of get my feet wet. And the first shows were abysmal. I was embarrassed. I was shy. Uh, Even though I'd had, you know, at that point in time, you know, 1,200 shows under my belt. But I got used to it. I got to liking it. I yeah. found my voice inside that and I had no intention of being solo. We loved playing together. Yeah. This wasn't like well like I needed to express myself personally, you know, Ixnay. Yeah. 
you know, we were doing it because we loved being together. Best friend a guy could have. We didn't get along when we first met, but we found a true friendship, a true collaboration. We were not a, a duo of convenience. Yeah. And then we figured, man, we've survived radio. We've survived retail. We've survived press. We can go forever. Wait, yeah. not so fast. Let's give Eric a fatal disease. And yeah. he was the healthy one. He was yeah. the one who ate right and worked out. And I was a guy who, you know, I would eat lard. And, and my idea of, of exercises is pushing a remote control. But he wound up with this. And so we all kind of said, what are we going to do about it? And he said, I want to keep going. You play the hand you're dealt. Exactly. And boy, did he play it. He was utterly inspiring. He would be called brave and he would deny it. He would be called inspirational and he would deny it. He says, I'm just trying to get from here to there. But that's where he taught everybody. He taught us all how to live and he taught us all how to die. Yeah. The best friend a man could have. I miss him every day. I will say musically I've moved on, not to some new different phase, to what probably I would have evolved into with him. And you didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. When, cho- well, when yeah. that hand was dealt to you. You know, you, your, I guess your other choice would just be to not to retire, play music. to stop. But and we've already talked about that. Yeah, that's exactly. Not really that wasn't going to happen. So let's let's hear what this sounds like. You know, I know this really is about you, but since we're talking so much about getting started with Eric Lowen uh, and you with Lowen and Navarro, let's play this track here. This is uh, we've picked the track "Compass Point" from the record "All the Time in the World." Yep, it's about change, and that's what we were facing at the point that we wrote this. This, this, we were making this record as he was getting his diagnosis, so it's reflected in some of the songwriting. All right, Lowen and Navarro here on Independence Day. Hey, little girl, I know I don't talk that much to you. Under the stars down by the river Looking up like I used to do But tonight I need to talk I'm gonna take a little walk Like we've got all the time in the world Your sister found the big heart Strong and true And if you could have stuck around I know she would have been there for you And when she held you and gave you a bath She didn't know you didn't have All the time love remains in fact it grows she misses you in ways you'll never never know and me I'm trying to be true cause I learned from you there ain't all the time Night I had a dream You were running on legs just like mine 
had your mother's ways Half wild and half shy You had your grandma's young red hair Maybe you know each other there And you got all the time in the world So hey little girl I know I don't talk that much to you Under the stars down by the river Looking up like I used to do But tonight I need to talk I'm gonna take a little walk Like we've got all the time in the world We've got all the time in the world My name is Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day. You can learn everything you need to know about us at indepday.com, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com. Also very happy to announce we are now on iTunes. Go to indepthday.com slash iTunes to find our podcast there. But if you go to the actual In-Depth Day website, you will not only find the podcasts of every artist we've had on the show, you will find individual songs that have been culled from these that you can listen to. So if you just want the tunes, you can do that. If you want to hear these conversations, which I think are great, you can check those out. Uh, my guest tonight, Dan Navarro from Lowen and Navarro. So happy to have you here, man. Great to be here, man. So let's backtrack just a little bit. We've been talking about Lowen and Navarro. We'll get to your stuff very, very shortly. But I want to hear, there aren't many duos in music, or any discipline rather, who have an 18-year career. Right. You know, and you said, you've admitted that, you know, you maybe didn't even like him that terribly oh, we much. Couldn't we couldn't stand each when, other. You know, when you first, and that's, you hear that a lot uh, in music and in, even in relationships, uh, you know, romantic relationships. You know, how is an 18-year partnership, like, how is that forged? How do you get from the point where it's like, that guy's a jerk, to, okay, I like him, and now we're going to work together, and then, and then it blossoms into this big thing. Like, give me the, like, maybe short version of how there did was, that transform? There was a watershed moment. We, were, we, were, um, we both had jobs as singing waiters at a restaurant here in L.A. I'd, been, I'd had a couple of songs out as a, as a songwriter, and I was trying to play the clubs as a solo singer-songwriter, and it wasn't working very well. He had been a member of a guy's band from back east and on Capitol, and the day the retainer ran out, the day that they got dropped and the retainer ran out, he went and looked for a job at this place. He got hired to replace me when I went on a short tour with Severin Brown. So he came back, I came back, and he had my job. So I didn't like him then. Six foot two, blonde, blue-eyed, gorgeous sort of guy, and I hated him for that. Wonderful guitar player, fantastic tenor, in a tenor era, I hated him for that. I was a songwriter, and I was a little bit arrogant about it in those days. He hated me for that. And then I, he he's actually said I would play my songs for these girls, and I would, my puppy dog eyes and my curly dark hair, and he'd go, what a chump. Well, I had if I had a buck for every woman that came up to me in those days saying, you know, hey, I want to talk to you, Dan. Is Eric dating anybody? So we really couldn't stand each other. One night, we're all hanging out after hours, singing a bunch of songs. 
and we fall into natural harmonies. Well, what happened is we both hit the same note. And kind of like bionic man slow motion, we hit the note and realize he's on that note, so we both go the third below, but we both go. So we both then go back up to hit the third above, and we're kind of going, and I looked at him, and I did a V sign with the palm of my hand out horizontally, and I flipped it to the back of my hand, in essence saying, let's take those two parts and switch them. Right. He stayed on top, I stayed below, we fell into natural harmonies, and it's like, wow, you can do that too? And from that point on, we loved singing together. We had a blend that was amazing. The voices sounded, you know, they complemented each other well. We knew we sang great together. So what really forged it was not just the love of music, but a necessity to be courteous to one another because we weren't natural friends. We were polite, we were respectful. I'm, I'm not saying we didn't violate that on occasion, but we treated each other with enormous respect because we weren't natural friends. And it really taught us both something. We hung out for a long time. We tried splitting. Uh, we said some mean things to each other at times, usually me to him. Um, and uh, we survived them. And what we discovered was that it was all about this, that not just this music, but the music was about harmony. So was our friendship. And by the time we really got to the point where, where we were hitting stride, we were the best of friends. We, uh, we you know, gave each other a lot of space, but we spent 10 years out of 14 living less than a block apart and walk into each other's houses for 15-minute rehearsals and started bashing out songwriting. We also taught each other something. I was a sort of long-standing songwriter when I met him, and he hadn't been. And I, he had, We Belong, which was our big hit for Pat Benatar, was the fifth song he'd ever written in his life, and it was a worldwide top five. I, on the other hand, would do something really cool and then sit on my keister for four or five months and do nothing. He had a work ethic. It's like, no, we work every day and we work until we're finished, and then we move on to the next. Not that he wasn't a great songwriter, and not that I didn't work hard, but we had natural tendencies that complemented each other. We learned, we trusted, and that's really what put us across. Is and, and those are the best types of relationships when they are complementary. Different people can bring different things to the table because you know, if, if everybody wants to be the guy icing the cake, or everybody's got to right. put the, the chicken on the grill, or whatever, you pick your metaphor... Uh, you know, there's going to be too many cooks in the kitchen. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, it's like I, I feel like I've been searching for my McCartney or my, you know, that would presuppose that I would then be the Lennon, which, of course, is in my dreams. But I've been searching for my McCartney. I've been even searching for my Simon or my Garfunkel or my whatever. Because that's you've got something that I always kind of wanted in music is that even though I fronted most of my bands, every band I've ever been in mm -hmm. almost, um, contrary to popular opinion, my ego is actually not that big. I fell into that role because I was the one working the hardest at it. Right. And I was the one writing the songs and hanging the posters and uh, engineering and buying the gear and buying the van or whatever to drive everybody around. So it's like, okay, so this is, I mean, I, this is my dream and I'm going to work my ass off at it. Uh, so I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be the guy who's going to reap the benefits from this because if I'm investing everything, but I wanted that team. And I always wanted to have someone to be my wingman, right? To go through it with me, and I'm still looking. Maybe I'll find that person one you day. You know, you might. You, know, you have to open up to it. You have to trust it, and you have to be willing to fail at it. I think yeah. that's part of it is to to find somebody to hook up with who are, where you get to the end of it and go, well, maybe not. Yeah. And again, Eric and I tried a couple times to to quit. Um, I asked him to join a band to start a band when we start. You know, when we first were singing together, we were doing stuff for this restaurant to make sure that the music sounded better and was was of higher caliber. And I said, man, we should start a band. He goes, nah, I think you're fine on your own. <laughs> Which I didn't quite realize was him blowing me off. 
And then finally he says, you know, I'm ready. Let's do it. And I had broken up with somebody and my job was changing, my other job. So I moved to, I was, I was preparing to move to London for a year or more or two or permanently. And he says, let's start a band. And I said, I'm moving to London in two weeks. But I found out that the phone bills weren't itemized in London. And so I used the office phone and called him every couple of days. And it got us inspired. And by the time he picked me up at the airport a year later, I did go back after a year. Uh, We were best friends. We were committed to working together. And it was probably three years later, four years later that We Belong happened. And you keep using the W word, which is something that I think a lot of people, a lot of people get into music thinking that they won't have to work. Hmm. Thinking that... You know, well, we write some songs, and then we get some girls, and we sell some records, and then we're on the bus, and then we're living in Beverly Hills or whatever. But it's that work part of it. There's luck definitely oh, absolutely. involved in this. But there's a lot of, even the lucky people are working. You put yourself in an advantageous position so that when the luck happens, exactly. you're able to then capitalize on it. Well, and I've used that phrase a lot, that there's three things that, that you need to succeed, talent, persistence, and luck. And of the three, the most expendable is talent. Yeah. Because with no persistence and luck, you're nowhere. We all know guys, women and men, who are very, very talented and either haven't been persistent enough or haven't been, just haven't been lucky. Yeah. And we admit openly, we admit it openly, and I to do to this day, we were very, very, very lucky. But we worked our butts off. We made sure that we were in position, and we just never stopped. And again, that's something that Eric taught me, instilled in me, that you just yeah. don't stop. And, you know, I helped him realize that those those demons that are in the back of your head bring them to the front of your head and talk about them because that's going to make for compelling songwriting yeah you got to get to the real stuff exactly you know and i as a writer i didn't write actually i consciously avoided writing when i was younger which may may or may not have been foolish uh because i i sensed in myself that i needed to live more Mm I needed to have more heartbreaks. You know, right. It's like I was worthless until I'd had my heart broken a few times in certain terms of songwriting. Because I could write whatever. I could throw melodies on top of chords and you know, maybe they'd be passable. But I, the kind of writing that I wanted to do, I consciously shunned it right. until I got to a certain point where it's like, okay, you know, now I've got some dings in the armor and now I've got some rust and now I've got some, you know, not, not gray hair yet at the point, but you know, now I've lived and now I can, I, I can do these things. And then I was, pr- at that point I was like, okay, now I was proud of what I was writing. Right. Anything I'd written before that I did because I knew I had to, but I just wasn't proud of those things. Well, especially the first time you write something that scares you to death because it's too, too exposed. And I have yeah. to say, you know, uh, we wrote We Belong in an hour and a half. And then he says, I want to start taking, Eric says, I want to start taking this tape around to publishers. And I'm going, cool. Whatever you do, man, please don't put We Belong on it. It's too sappy. It's a ballad. Put the rock stuff. They'll really like that. And he said, yeah, absolutely, no problem, and then completely ignored me, put We Belong on it, and changed everything. If he had listened to me, you know, I'd be probably installing your telephones right now. Yeah. You do a better job than the guy who (laughs) actually installed them. Long stories about utility guys, but we will save those for a different show. For another day. Another day. Uh, let's play a tune. Let's play one of your tunes. Uh, this is from the record. You've got this brand new record that's coming out. Uh, it's going to be called Shed My Skin. Yeah. Correct. But this is a track. It's from Skinless, well, which th- is kind of like a little kind of pre-EP kind of teaser thing. Tell, yeah. me, tell me what that is. Well, Skinless, I'm, I was, I've been making the record for the last year, and I'm financing it myself. Um, so it's been tough. And uh, I, I had some festivals coming over the summer that were really important to have something new at. So I decided to put seven songs out, and uh, 
they're cut down to guitar and voice only. I figured it wouldn't get in the way. This is kind of thing you normally see like after the record comes out. Yeah, yeah. I decided to do it in advance because it was the only thing I had. It's actually been quite successful for me, and it's gotten people primed for the record when it comes. The title track is is you know the title of the record "Shed My Skin," so I call this "Skinless," the "Shed My Skin" demos. And yeah. um, I figured it wasn't bad to not to to hint at the new record and to come up with a relatively inappropriate title. I thought would yeah. be kind of cool. All right, so this is Dan Navarro with a track from his skinless EP, pre-EP, teaser EP. The track is Straight to the Heart of Me, Dan Navarro on Independence Day. It's a tender connection between you and me. I see by your expression You don't see what I see Staring into the future Don't know what lies ahead Let me paint you a picture And we'll see what it says Through the doubt and confusion There's one thing that's clear There is no solution but I have no fear Cause regret is too easy But redemption is free So I'll leave the door open Straight to the heart of me Sometimes we're like phantoms that bump in the night Sometimes we're like angels floating into the light Sometimes we're like strangers so distant and cold Afraid of what's broken, unsure of what's whole Through the doubt and confusion there's one thing that's clear There is no solution But I have no fear Cause regret is too easy But redemption is free So I'll leave the door open Straight to the heart of me The heart of shoulder a burden right here where we stand we love with conviction and some sleight of hand ah the dangers are many and the mercies are few ah but I won't lay any more excuses on you cause through the doubt and confusion there's one thing that's clear There is no solution But I have no fear Cause regret is too easy But redemption is free 
So I'll leave the door open Straight to the heart of me Straight to the heart of me Straight to the heart of me My guest tonight on Independence Day, Dan Navarro. He was one half of the very famous and very cool duo, Lowen and Navarro, which sadly does not perform anymore. But he's on his own. He's been on his own. He started even before we lost, Eric. Yeah, I started in 06, dipping my toe in, playing markets that we didn't play to not compete or confuse yeah. the audience or, frankly, hurt my partner's feelings. <laughs> you know, It's part I, of being in a partnership. Well, you know, I, it, it was important that we do it this way. I had a couple people say, you know, man... You should just, he's, you know, he's got a fatal disease. You should just step out now. And I went, no, I can't do that. You out of your mind? I can't do that. That's what I would say. That's just, well, it was, it was, that wasn't the cutting edge of horrible. I couldn't do that. It's not in my, it's not in the fabric of my soul. Like you stick with things. You stick, exactly. And especially you, you, you go home with the date that brung you and I wouldn't have made it without Eric and he wouldn't have made it without me. So we did that, but I needed to get out there. I needed to sort of test the waters and make the mistakes. So I started in markets where I wasn't, you know, where he couldn't go anymore because of the travel issues. And I got to tell you, those first shows were so embarrassing. I was, I was embarrassed. I was shy. It, it almost sounded like, it, it felt and sounded like when I first started out playing, you know, all those years before. But I got it out of my system. And I, I, there was a telling moment. I did a show at the Town Crier in Pauling, New York. And a couple of actor friends of mine, a couple who are both working actors, and, you know, he said, you, you were good up there. You know, I'm looking forward to, to when you get used to it. And a year later, I played the same club, and he came, and he said, light years difference. Now, he hasn't seen me play out in about six years. Uh, I'd like to see what he has to say now. But the, uh, so by, by 09, Eric had retired. It was, it was over, and we knew it. He couldn't sing anymore. He had already lost the ability to, to play, and he was immobile from the shoulders down. But he couldn't muster enough breath to sing to sing at all, really. So we did a couple farewell shows in Washington, D.C., not a dry eye in the house, uh, gave away Kleenex with a little sticker, commemorative Kleenex, because we knew people were going to be crying their eyes out, yeah. including us. And the next week, I um, I made a solo record at, at McCabe's here in Los Angeles that was really the official coming out, because although I'd been playing out for two years, it wasn't really official, official. And from that point on, I haven't looked back. Not that I don't... I talk about the legacy... It's not all Lowen and Navarro songs. It's not all Lowen and Navarro all the time. But I don't shy away from the legacy either. I own it. I co-own it. How could it. you? It's impossible. And I think it'd be weird to sort of, you know, got to remember a period when, when, you know, the Beatles were playing out separately and they wouldn't refer to anything. And now I think Paul even plays John songs once in a while. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. You know, whether he co-wrote them or not, it's part of that legacy. I'll do Eric songs I didn't have anything to do with writing. Because otherwise, no one gets to hear those songs. Right. And you know, now I'm on I'm on like 90 shows a year. I'm having a great time out there. Some shows are bigger than others. Some are easier than others. But all of it was better than than you know. Well, my worst day as a musician was better than my best day in advertising. <laughs> yeah, so indeed. So I moved on, and and it's been great. But the legacy will always be there. I will say that the set list is now you know 40, 60 Lone and Navarro songs. It used to be 70, 30. 
and that's going to change over time. Yeah. But I'll never stop doing them. They're part of the, they're part of what it is. And yeah. And you know, I didn't, I didn't quit. I didn't fire him. We didn't break up. He died. Yeah. And that's, and that's okay. Yeah. Well, you do what you do. Yeah. You know, it sounds like a perhaps oversimplified way to say it, but he's gone. He's your friend, but you did work with him for 20 plus years. Exactly. And you're still here. So what else are you going to do? But, well, exactly. Keep doing what you do. And it's good. You, there's no reason for you to stop doing what you're doing. Like, I've loved sitting here and listening to you play and listening to you talk about these kinds of things. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's what I wanted there's to anything, do since I was eight years old. If there's, any, if there's any justice in the universe, you will not stop doing well, this. thank you. And you can learn about Dan at Dan Navarro, excuse me, dannavarromusic.com. I want to make sure people got that clearly. Also, facebook.com slash Music. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Navarro. So all the usual places his records are available on iTunes and in stores and all the places where you get professional musicians' music. And you brought a guitar. I brought a guitar. Today, a beautiful Taylor, kind of a sunburst thing. I love the sunburst. Uh, what's the first song you're going to play for us? first song is going to be the title track of the next record for a lot of reasons. Um, it was sort of, it wasn't the first song I wrote for the record, but it's really what determined its direction. Um, I was asked to write this by a friend who's an actor uh, named Enrique Castillo. He's a working actor. He's been in a lot of stuff that people have seen. And he's working on a, on a movie. And he asked if I would write something for the picture. Um, and it was basically a story of a person who's a, 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 a Latino guy who is back in the hood 40 years after he and all his friends got arrested in a major demonstration. And they're there for the funeral of a friend. And they discover over time the various ways in which each of them have bought in to some sort of program and sold out their beliefs. Uh, and they confront each other over these things. It's, it's um, a, quite a harrowing tale in some ways. And this is after a key scene, if it makes the movie, which I think it will. Um, but it, it really set off what I meant to say in this. And so the record's no longer just a collection of songs. It's about both renewal and denial at the same time. And, yeah. they, and so the song and the album are called Shed My Skin. All right, Dan Navarro, brand new music here on Independence Day. Take a ride across the border to a place that once was mine. Out of focus, out of order, pictures from another time. On the outside, turning lighter. So much darker in my eyes Gas and water On the fire Makes no difference, something dies So I take a piece of who I am And stretch it thin Every time I start to feel the walls closing in, I shed my skin. Mm. 
Come on and take a ride on the dragon. Hiding out behind the lines, piling bodies on the wagon. Everyone's a friend of mine, but when I feel that bitter chill in the wind, I swear that I can feel the room start to spin. So I shed my skin. I shed my skin Ooh, yeah. Through the smoke, through the rubble Through the crossfire, friends in need On the inside of the bubble We see what we choose to see Joe Armstrong. I'm so happy to bring you Independence Day every single week. Tonight's guest, Dan Navarro, one half of the songwriting and performing duo Lowen and Navarro. You can learn about him at dannavarro.com. You can also learn about Independence Day at indepday.com. Follow us on Twitter at indepday. And we are now on iTunes, indepday.com slash iTunes. Great song, Thanks, man, man. First and foremost. Very, very good. Uh, I like... You have slightly lower register in your voice. Yeah, I always was a low register, and I'm I'm milking it as opposed yeah. to trying to sing up higher. I'm I'm going where I'm the most comfortable. I yeah. can really dig in and 
and use you know the all of the vocal cord. And you don't have to go all crash test dummies on it. You know, whoa, was this boy? And not to t- I think it's Brad Roberts. Yeah, right? exactly. Not to take anything away from Brad because he made it a thing, and everybody yeah, knows it. Everybody knows that. Um, but again, when you have a lower voice, as do I. Um, you know, you're like you were talking about Eric before. Like you look at the tenors and think, oh man, wish I could do that because it's a physical limitation. Well, and it's also there was a period I actually referred to it as a money tenor because there was a period where whether it's Daryl Hall or or um, God Bobby Kimball from Toto right. or any of these guys, the guys from Toto, or yeah, all of those guys, Journey, yeah, Journey. I mean, you're talking about some very who can sing like Steve Perry, God. except for the guy that they replaced. The guy him with, replaced him from the Philippines. He's great. And they, had to, and they had to go to the Philippines. Exactly, to get some guy who sounded just like him. Now, for me, I mean, that was actually part of the limitations early on when we met. He had this great money tenor, and I was, you know, and I sounded like, like Jim Morrison. Well, the paradigm started shifting right around Billy Idol, who obviously did some Jim Morrison stuff. He was one of the guys with a lower voice that could get back and rock, and this was in a, in a rock era, in a rock context. Um, what it started being for me was, you know, we blended well and I could stay down low, although we occasionally switch parts and all of that. Once it was down to being solo, I just decided I had to own it. And yeah. uh, by then I'd picked up some colors in my voice that I hadn't used. Uh, I, li- I listened to the early Lone and Navarro records and I sing really differently, not, not dramatically, but more like an evolution. Yeah. I'm using more of the color. I'm using, I can use haze and texture. It doesn't all have to be pushed at one level. And I'm curious to know what you think about this, because in my own singing, uh, you know, you always try, I always tried to sing higher when right. I was younger and push it, you know, and there, there's something to be said for that because, you know, Don Henley loves to key things in the exact yeah. right key. So it sounds like the song is in the perfect key for your voice or mm-hmm. his voice or whoever's singing the song. Very important. Um, and with guitar, you know, you've got weird limitations with the mechanics of the chords and how you wrote it because you can capo, but then sometimes it doesn't sound right with the right. capos, all these different crazy things you can do. But I feel like this is for both for songwriting and as a singer, I didn't feel like I was good until I stopped trying to be something else right. and did what I did and find my own voice literally and figuratively again. Like what, what, is my, what can my voice do that's unique and, and entertaining and people would want to listen to? That's, that's what it's all based on. I mean, there, what happens once we stop emulating and there's an early stage when we're all emulating yeah you can't when, help it when we quit emulating is when we realize that what an audience wants and in, whether it's an individual or a crowd is they want honesty now you can have costume and still be honest totally. if you own it bowie was the king of that you know he was it was costume but he owned it and you find where you feel the best where you feel the most expressive most comfortable for your voice You'll feel it in your body when it resonates. And I do use capos a lot, and I will do kind of what you say Henley does, and I will go up and down the neck until I find the spot where it's exactly right. Not where it's the highest and I can manage it. That's not what it's about. It's about there is a point and you know it. And I, I mean, there's a, a song I'm going to do later uh, where I did exactly that. I wrote it in D. I played it out in E flat, put it into E, and finally, right before a radio show, said, I'm going to try F. Might be too high. Turned out that was the key, and that's where I play it. Yeah. Well, you just need to suit the song. Right. It's something you hear in you know, musical production circles a lot. And that's, I feel like everything I do as a writer, as a musician, is to serve the song. Right. You know, and maybe to my own detriment, because I feel like, especially living in a place like California, which is a little more affectatious, it's a showman type of town. It's an entertainment I business think, is town. That, that's a synonym for phony, isn't it? <laughs> Affectatious. Could be. 
Could be, but it's, you know, rock and roll is a visual medium. Yeah. We are, it's something I had to learn when I moved from Chicago to Los Angeles is that we are entertainers. Right. You know, and I came up in an era where it was like, it was like Uncle Tupelo. You know, mm-hmm. bands, you went on stage with what you were wearing around the house. Right. Or, you know, and, and it, that wasn't even grunge. It was kind of pre-grunge. Right. You know, it was, what you wanted was that honesty. Like, you went on stage dressed like you were dressed, and you played, and you did your songs, and you got out of there, and you didn't talk a whole lot. You just did your thing, right? And then I realized, you know, I got a little older. Like, now I look back. I, mean, I used to play gigs wearing shorts. Mm-hmm. I'm not big on rules, but I would never in a million years play a gig wearing shorts uh, yeah, ever I've, again as long as I live. I've had two rules with the guy because the other one is I won't play in sandals. Yeah. I, it's, it, it, for me, it's become a respect for the fact that we are in the entertainment business. Right. We're entertainers. No matter how true we want to be with our songwriting, you have to remember your people, and, and entertainment can be sad. You know, exactly and, it, right. and it can be tragedy. You know, that's the whole masks, tragedy, uh, comedy. It's all part of it. But I had to learn to respect that. And it was a lesson I had to learn as a performer. And now, I, I, at least I hope I've learned it. <laughs> well, and, and you know, you can, you can go up on stage in what you've got on, and that's not a bad thing. But there still is a way of putting the best foot forward. I've got a friend um, who would go up on whatever jeans he was wearing, and, and I would kind of say, you know what? Maybe you wouldn't want to wear skinny jeans, but maybe you'd be well served to go spend 10 bucks and take it to the dry cleaner and get the seamstress to take the seams in so it's just hugging your leg enough so that it's not loose and it's not tight. But what, because what you're so dealing with is, is you. you're dealing with a silhouette <laughs> on stage. Right. And you want to present a silhouette that's entertaining to look at. Lord knows, Eric and I wrote incredibly poignant music. So we cracked dumb, stupid jokes on stage. We would make fun of ourselves. We would say the Prozac portion of the evening is coming or whatever in order to keep people entertained because that's how you set them up for what you're trying to deliver as an artist. If, if the entire show, I mean, you know, gosh, uh, Leonard Cohen has written some dark, dark, dark songs, but this is a man with a razor sharp wit mm-hmm. and, and he brings people along on a journey and that's really what you're doing. There's a beginning, a middle and an end, and there's a journey you're going on and it's visual, it's oral, it's verbal. Uh, and that's what you want to present. My guest, Dan Navarro from Lowen and Navarro. My name is Joe Armstrong. Right now we're talking about showmanship and music and respect for like balancing songwriting legitimacy with like presenting an entertaining product. And the guy that I always think about the most when I think about this, and I revere this man. I mean, if anyone, if any, any famous person I could ever meet, because I don't get starstruck very easily because I like to talk to people and people usually wind up talking to me, is that uh, Tom Waits oh, man. would be that guy because he's a guy who, I mean, what a consummate showman. The guy's practically a carnival barker vaudevillian era performer. But Diamonds yet, on my windshield, but, tears from heaven, heading but, to town on the interstate, got me a steel train in the rain. Right, and that was just his first phase. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then he's gone through six others since then. Oh, but, Matilda. but there's so much behind that. There's so much mass and... Um, just weight and but also lightness and it's but it's all there you know and people just a lot of people don't get him at all you know it's like dylan for some people right like so it's i mean i don't follow the guy around i don't you know i don't have a tom waits tattoo but man the reverence i have for the what that guy's been able to accomplish in terms of balancing songwriting legitimacy and like a like a persona that's entertaining well he did something in a show i actually invoked this in a, in a house concert i did in berwin illinois on sunday just a few days ago I saw him play at the Venice Theater in uh, Venice, California, the Fox Theater in Venice, California. And he started to do something, and he stopped right in the middle of it. 
and reached into his inside coat pocket and pulled a beer out, cracked it, sipped it, put the can down, and picked up. Now, come on. If that's not showmanship, what is? But it was effective. It showed an edgy persona. It showed something funny without it being a joke. You know, and the persona he had in those days certainly was the sort of, you know, seedy underbelly. Piano has been drinking. Exactly. So he pulls, I think it was a Coors, but he pulls this beer can out, cracks it, drinks it, puts it down. Yeah. I loved it. And actually, the reason I invoked it was because I was eating. I had picked up some food for this house concert, and I had stuck some some cheese cubes in my my uh, jacket pocket. And I'm in the middle of talking to people, and I pull them out, and I pop a couple. And some woman looked at me like, is that cheese? What? Like, <laughs> what? The sort of, you know, slightly squinted, your hands are up, and you shake your head to go, what? Yeah. And I went, what? You know, I'm just, but I you was You don't consci- carry cheese in your I pocket? I was conscious of the fact that, That's okay, I'm saying. grabbing this. And I said, well, this might be kind of fun. And so I stuck it in there. It wasn't to get an effect, yeah. but it also, I don't walk around doing that. It was yeah. something... I felt like I could I could push this limit and have a little fun with it. And I said, you know what? I saw Tom Waits do this, and I invoked it just a couple of days ago. Yeah. The thing with the glitter, the last time he did, I only seen him play live once, about you know, 99 or so. And he had this thing. He had, a, he had built a box that he would stand on in front of house that he, they had mic'd up the box like mm-hmm. a resonator. And he, every now and again, he would stomp on it. And it must have opened up some kind of gate, which yep. would just go boom into yep. the hall. And every time he did that, he would... Right before he did it, he would reach into his pocket and grab a handful of glitter. And then when he would stomp on it, he would throw some glitter. I mean, it's so simple, but so effective and so entertaining. The sense of theater does not belie the beauty, the honesty, and the integrity of the music. It, to me, it embellishes it. You know, you don't have to be Kiss to, to do that. And let's talk about Kiss. They decided to go unmasked, and the yeah. audience went, oh, no, no, would you mind putting the makeup back on? Yeah. We really liked that better. Yeah. And so they did. You know, to me, it's all legitimate. The, the real question is whether it's reaching an audience. And some music is intended to be, you know, fodder for a commercial mill. No problem. I frankly don't have much of any problem with anything that's commercially successful, with very few exceptions. And, and some of the exceptions are kind of, you know, I had a real problem with the group Fun who had this song that sounded exactly like Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel. I A-B'd them for my 17-year-old. And he went like, wow, how did they not get sued? But, you know, it happens. To me, if something connects with an audience, it's valid. The real question is, do you mean it? And is it what you mean to do? If you mean to do it, then you've succeeded, whether you sell a bunch of records or not. And if people get it for that reason. For us, we wanted to put across poignant music, heartfelt, poignant music with a sense of, of... light at the end of the tunnel, but, you know, walking through some mud. And then in between the songs, you know, make fun of each other, poke fun at each other. Eric was the king of it, man. He actually would say on stage, he'd go up there in his powered wheelchair with a headset mic, couldn't move really from the shoulders down, spin a donut in his wheelchair and say, you know, we're just a couple of guys up here, a cripple and a man in a wheelchair. And that, I, yeah. I'd laugh my head off. Because yeah. that's, that's what we were there for. We were yeah. there to entertain, and if we got you comfortable enough by entertaining you, you might hear what we meant in the songs, and people have said that's what they did. So yeah. it, it meant a lot to us. I'm talking with Dan Navarro, one half of the songwriting duo performers, Lowen and Navarro. Uh, you brought a guitar. I did. And you played one song for us, and I would love it if you played another one. What's this going to be? 
This one is this one has Chicago roots. It's actually I started thinking about I. it. Yeah, I started thinking about it outside a venue called Space in Evanston, Illinois. Um, just let's just say that there was a personal experience that led to this. Um, it was it's called Bulletproof Heart. The original inspiration was called Bulletproof Car. But it's hmm. no longer called bulletproof car. And you can't really call it Pope Mobile. It's not no, lyric, exactly it's not really a lyrical phrase. I was hanging out with a friend in her bulletproof car that she had had inherited from her father, and um, you know that from that point on, the an inspiration uh, happened that that caused me to start making the song up, and I sort of morphed the car into the heart, and it made a lot more sense. And this is bulletproof heart. All right, Dan Navarro on Independence Day. top of the mountain and there you were bathed in the shadows alone in the dark with a lock and chain around your bulletproof heart minute by minute time after time body to body Crossing over the line Wrapped in each other A shower of sparks Began to melt the ice away From your bulletproof heart Somebody tell me please Are we really here? I opened my eyes And you disappeared And all the king's horses and all the king's men Can't put the genie back in the bottle again Now I try to remember To try to forget The way you felt that night But it ain't happened yet One perfect kiss Blew the shackles apart To keep you locked inside Bulletproof heart Somebody please tell me What's happening here? The image is hazy, but the memory's so clear. And all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put the genie back in the bottle again. So where are the fault lines? How deep are the ties? Can I ever touch the fire I see in your eyes? We can come together or we'll come apart. 
But I cannot come away from your bulletproof heart Your bulletproof heart It's too hard to imagine And too late to pretend That all the things we said and did Won't happen again How do we finish and where do we start to break down the walls around your bulletproof heart, your bulletproof heart? Good tune. I love it. I love the minor key. I love the Travis picking. And we yep. were talking before about learning how to do that as an adult. Like you feel like when you're a kid, you learn new stuff all the time. Right. I had to force myself and my right hand to do that Travis picking type of thing. It's a specific type of finger picking of guitar picking in case those those of you who don't play guitar, the eight of you who don't in Los Angeles. Yeah, I think was it. It's, I think it's named after Merle Travis. I believe so, yes. Who, had, um, who wrote 16 tons. But his style was like boom, 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 boom. And yeah. you... you alternate your thumb boom bump boom bump boom bump boom bump and the fingers are going in between the notes the result is a kind of a dum 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 it was fairly revolutionary at the time at the time because yeah. it sounded like more than one guitar player was playing right because somebody was doing the bass and somebody was playing some other complimentary stuff on top of that right very cool i, I love that style of playing man uh, and good tune, of course, minor tune, minor key tunes are always like good. The minor and also, you know, I think I've, I've, I don't, it's the second time I've said this in this interview, but I'm not big on rules, but I think every album should have a song in three. Mm-hmm. Will your new record, will it have some soft stuff in three? Uh, not this one. Uh-oh. Uh, oh, actually, it depends on whether I do this one thing that I'm thinking of doing. There's a cover I want to do. Uh, I've got, I'm, I'm stuck. It, what it basically is, it's, it's um, a Beatles song. I won't say which one. But the melody and the rhythm and the chord progression are completely different. The only thing that makes it a Beatles song is that it's the lyric. And I've been trying to rewrite it and trying to rewrite it into my own song, and it's not happening. But that's in a 6-8, so it's kind of like... Triple meter. We'll see if it, if, it, if it ends up... If there's a Beatles song on the record, you know that it worked. Um, but, you know, I don't think I want to say that it was inspired by the Beatles if I end up changing the lyrics. Yeah. Well, it's, man, I mean... What in music isn't inspired by the Beatles in some way? Well, let me tell you. Well, Although, like it or not. Well, I've got a friend in Chicago, you know, who shall remain, remain nameless so as uh, not to offend Paul Wiltberger, but um, <laughs> he, he's not a Beatles fan. He, he I have never, a friend like that, too. He never got it. And part of it was that he was born after the Beatles happened. Or I think he was a toddler when they came out or something like that. So he didn't know a non-Beatles world. To me, I remember the transition, and I remember sitting there, February 9th, 1964, looking at the television going, what is that? Holy Toledo. And it changed everything and everybody. To come up from that, you know, we've been chasing that paradigm for 50 years. You know, 10 years after Big Band, it was over. And even though it's legitimate music and wonderful music, 
it was over. 10 years after the crooner era in the 50s, it was over. 50 years after the Beatles, you know, I'm, I don't care if it's U2 or Coldplay or Prince or whatever, they're still drawing on that energy. Yeah. And, you know, and you get a guy like Prince, he's also drawing on Ray Charles and James Brown and all the other influences, no problem. But the fact that what we define as the paradigm was defined by them and reoriented dramatically. So from that standpoint, you know, there's still Beatles songs that are way worth doing. In fact, my show was on February 9th, and it was uh, in Chicago in a, in a living room. And instead of closing with We Belong, uh, my opener, James Curley, and I did seven Beatles songs because it was Beatles Day. You know, really, really fun. Yeah, and there's a technical consideration that a lot of people don't give credence to or they don't really think about is the fact that uh, when George Harrison died, mm-hmm. I had a dopey office job. And I showed up and I was in a bad mood because I just heard about it that morning. You know, never met the man, but you don't need to meet George Harrison to be upset by his passing. For yeah. the love of God, it's George Harrison. Yeah. And there was a girl there and she, she was like, well, what are you upset about? I was like, well, George Harrison died. And she was like, well, who's that? I was like, well, he was one of the Beatles. And she knew the Beatles were. But it was, you know, she's like, well, you know, what's the big deal? The Beatles, yeah, sure, they wrote some great songs. I'm like, no, no, you don't get it. Right. And I said, what do you listen to? She said, well, I, I listen to rap primarily. And I said, the rap artists owe a direct debt to the Beatles. And she said, how? Why? They didn't have nothing to do with the Beatles. And I said, those guys who are making music hands-on in the studio, mm-hmm. creating it and engineering it themselves, it was the Beatles who broke down that wall. Right. When bands used to go into the studio, guys in lab coats would come down with slide rules and measure mm-hmm. out where mics go and then go back up into the room and press a button and say, okay, boys, play your song now. And at the end of the song, it's like, okay, thank you, go home now. And then there was no cross, you couldn't get across that wall. The Beatles had so much success, they could go, you know, what's going on in there? And they said, well, no, you you can't go in there. You know, the hell we can't. We can buy this place. And they broke down that barrier. And whether you like the Beatles or not, you know, they weren't the only ones, but they were the biggest ones. Oh, they changed so many things. They changed everything about that. And and they did take, you know, American popular music and adapt it to a great degree. I mean, they were huge fans of Goffin and King. Uh, and all of the stuff that came up. Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry. But I got to say, their chord progressions were... I mean, Eric and I first started learning Beatles songs when we first got together. And we would sit there and go, this is really hard to figure out. And then we would figure out the progression. And it made logical sense, but it wasn't necessarily intuitive. It was groundbreaking. They were the first band to really, really write their own songs consistently. Yeah. And not simply do... Although they did covers early on because they needed to flesh out four sets, five sets a night back in the old days. They, they were known as, they, were, they came on the scene as writers, yeah. and that was unique. Uh, you were talking about some of the things that the, the lab coats did. Jeff Emmerich wrote this amazing book called Here, There, and Everywhere, where he talks about his experiences engineering the Beatles. He was the guy that, that on paperback writer, recorded the bass with a, with a speaker, which is essentially yeah. like a microphone, only backwards. Transducer. They're exactly. both transducers. Transducers. And tra- changes, it turns airwaves and sound waves into, into electrical energy. He was the one who first took the head, the skin, off a kick drum and put the microphone in the kick drum. Absolutely violated every rule in the EMI music, EMI records, studios, um, book on how to record. And he, he got in trouble for it. He said he was going to do it anyway. And they finally made rules that, okay, well, these are the rules, except for the Beatles. Right. And they were allowed to break the rules. You didn't put microphones that close to anything or it would blow the capsule, so they thought. Well, it also led then, you got to figure, to new engineering techniques in how microphones were made and what they were capable of handling in terms of air pressure. 
They changed everything. It still matters. When I was flying home from Chicago a few days ago, I decided in celebration of, of Beatle Day, what I call it now, I started listening from the top down. I got to hear them grow. But they, wow. I got to say, from that very first record, they were on it. And it is amazing that they got turned down by every label in town, in the country, and were signed by a guy who was known for signing weird stuff. He does comedy records. He does strange stuff. He'll sign anything. And look what it did. Yeah, the Beatles, and we all benefited from it, man. Yeah. Let's take one left turn. I want to talk just a little bit. You've got a, a long enough career to have seen, you know, we talked about before, like pre-Beatles. Right. Talk to me just a little bit about technology and how it's changed what you do. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Used to be that you would go into a recording studio. You had no idea how anything was done. You would pay hundreds of dollars an hour for the time. You had, you recorded on tape. That meant that you had only a certain number of times to do it before you were racking up huge expenses. In those days, 100 bucks for a roll of tape that would hold three songs. You had a limited number of tracks. You know, we talked, the, the Beatles did Sgt. Pepper on four tracks. Now, they did a lot of bouncing to pre-mix. There's way more than four tracks of music on there, but that's all they had in terms of tracking. I grew up in a 16, and an 8 and a 16 track era, but by the time I was making records, it was 24 track de rigueur. It was also a digital era where I could have done 48 or more. Now we're dealing with Pro Tools where you have virtual tracks under every track and you have an unlimited number of tracks based on your processor speed and hard drive space. Hard drive by itself to be able to physically see your waveform and move things around. Um, the Makes you wonder what the Beatles would have done with that technology, doesn't boy, it? Boy, it's amazing to think about. Well, you know, and the, the running joke is in the old days of analog tape recording, you would get a producer saying, okay, that was really great, now do it again. And now in the days of Pro Tools, you get, man, that stunk. Come on in, we're done. Yeah. And because you can fix things and you can change things, you can retune, you can physically move stuff. It's made for a kind of perfection, but it's also sterilized music to a great degree. But the positive side means that if you've got the presence of mind and a certain amount of budget and it doesn't take much, you can have equipment in your own home that sounds comparable to the high-end studios. You can't purchase the skill to know the difference between a good take and a bad take or a good song and a bad song, but you can at least make it sound amazing. Microphones are cheaper. You know, I, I, don't, I have logic that I use on my Mac, but I don't actually use it. I record most of my stuff in GarageBand because I also don't want to make records at home. I like going into a studio. That's a physical and mental and creative choice, but I could do it at home on software that comes for free. Mm-hmm. And and use I mean I recorded a lot of demos using a symbol sync- free with sy- your expensive Mac with your expensive Mac yes and and I will say that at the end of the day you don't remember what something costs you remember if it works for you yeah and if it works and if Windows works for you go for it and I have a lot of friends using Windows based systems using Cubase or um, I can't remember the the uh, starts with a P it's not Presonus but um, there's a million of them there's a million of them the bottom line is that you can do this stuff at home. You can record live shows. For years, we recorded our live shows, burnt CDs on site, and sold them to people, to, you know, handed them to them at the end of the night for them to listen on the way home. Technology has What would changed. you sell a disc for like that back we in the day? We would sell for 15 bucks. 15 it'd, be bucks. A, it'd be probably a two-and-a-half to three-hour show that we would sell for 15 bucks. burn them on two separate CDs. Um, the guy who staged the house concert I did in Berwyn is the guy who came up with the idea. He had the gear, and we recorded probably 150 to 200 shows this way. It was a, an amazing source of found income because people, it didn't keep them from buying whatever the new album was. 
We actually broke the house record at the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia in 2006, 7,200 bucks in merchandise for an independent band in a 500-seat venue. So it wasn't a 20,000-seater or 2,000-seater. Yeah. But it, it worked. Um, the Internet has meant that you can reach people directly. It means that you don't need a gatekeeper anymore. If you've got the energy and the acumen, you can reach people, you can create good music and put it out there, whether it's up on YouTube or SoundCloud or just you know your own, your own site. If you can draw people, if you can get them interested, it's getting them interested that's hard. Right. But you can utilize the resources to at least do something. I don't spam people. I've, I've seen... You know, I've seen people saying, you know, we can get your, you know, we can get your stuff out to two million people. Well, you know, 1.99 million of them don't want it, you know, and I'd rather go to people that are interested yeah. and, and, and get them in that way. We're in a segmented world now in terms right. of our audiences, by, for better or for worse. Uh, you know, we can, bands can find their audience because the audience is probably there. Right. The challenge now is finding them. The demand for music hasn't gone down yeah. one iota. Even There's, the CD sales have plummeted. Yeah. You know? And there's amazing music. You know, my father complains up and down. There's no good music, and I think he's wrong. No, there's a lot. I think of it. there's fantastic music being made. And the the funny thing is, though, I think that even though there are so many channels to find it, that becomes a hindrance. There are there's so much great music. It's actually kind of harder to find it. But once you find that mm -hmm. vein, if you're into furry pre seventy eight punk uh, transvestite but yet wears accountant outfits music. There's just probably a scene for that. There's definitely a scene for everything. Find anything you want. Yep. Any, anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, we've got about enough time for one more tune here, man. What, uh, what have you got for us for I'm this last tune? I'm going to play you my brand newest, newest, brandest, newest song. Um, one that I wasn't too comfortable with at first because uh, portions of the lyrics seem contradictory. Um, it's a breakup song of devotion is all I'll say about it. It's called Arrows. All right, Dan Navarro, brand new song, Arrows on Independence Day. Oh, my love, the time has come to be moving on to where I don't know. And as you go, there will be a door to a place where all the answers lie in hiding. Time is a healer. Ever the revealer to all we cannot know. Through the twisting and the turning and the losses and the learning, I want you to know when the arrows are flying, so called friends are lying about you. When all the skies turn black Honey, have no fear You know I'm standing right here With every step down the track I got your back Oh my love There's a light we spun That made the colors run Fade into each other But now I see What I could not be So I'll set you free To walk a safer road And 
as the days and years turn into mist on the horizon where all our sorrows set through the twisting and the turning and the losses and the learning may you never forget when the arrows are flying so-called friends are lying about you when all the skies turn black honey have no fear you know i'm standing right here with every step down the track i got your back Lost in love or found as friends When everything has changed Through the twisting and the turning And the losses and the learning One thing will stay the same When the arrows are flying So-called friends are lying about you When all the skies turn black Honey, have no fear You know I'm standing right here With every step down the track I got your back I got your back Dan Navarro doing one of my favorite things in songs, humming the melody. <laughs> Love that kind of stuff, man. Thank you so much for coming out, being so generous with oh, your time. Joe, generous what a with pleasure, man. Uh, it's been great to get to know you a little bit better, and I hope I get to hoist a pint with you one of these days. Absolutely. Just kind of, because, I, again, I talk about these things all the time. So uh, DanNavarro.com is where you can learn about him. He's got a brand-new record. It should be coming out by June or so Yep. called Shed My Skin. Is this an independent release? Totally independent. Actually, Eric and I started Red Hen Records based on the story of the little red hen who, you know, no one would help her make her wheat, Indeed. but they all wanted to eat the bread. And That's right. She had a rather profane response that I'll save for another time. But uh, D- So we started Red Hen Records, and it's going to be on Red Hen Records. Very nice. DIY all the way. Also, Facebook.com slash Dan Navarro Music. Follow him on Twitter at Dan Navarro. As always, indepthday.com is your world HQ for my show. Uh, so Dan Navarro's got a bunch of other records as well. You can pick up his Dan Navarro with Stone Honey live at McCabe's. That's through your website, dannavarro.com. Plus, I'm counting 12 Lone and Navarro CDs. 12 Lone and Navarro, six studio albums, a Christmas record, a, um, and uh, quite a few live records. And actually, that's not even counting the ones that we would sell at the shows. We've got uh, two right now that are internet only, uh, one from 1991, and a kid's show from 2004 where we did kids' music. Um, kind of rewrote some songs and, you know, 
I do a blues version of the the wheels of the bus go round yeah, and yeah. round, and it was kind of silly, but kids are little humans. Absolutely, humans like music. Uh, so Dan, thank you very very much, man, for coming. Pleasure, in. I appreciate man. it so much. So thanks to Dan Navarro, also to the Independence Day staff, Valentino Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. For Independence Day, I'm Joe Armstrong. Please be good to one another.